and welcome to Barbatos Catholic Podcast, the show where two Mexican dads talk about faith, life, and culture. We are your hosts, Gustavo and Walter, and today we have a very special guest, Father Michael O'Loughlin. Not O'Loughlin, O'Loughlin. Ah, um, <laughs> uh, you beat me to it. Yes, O'Loughlin, <laughs> like, like Loch Ness. Like Loch Ness. Um, did, do you get that a lot? Did people tell oh, you? Oh, yeah. And, my, and my, my friends are worst of it. My, my nickname, one of my buddies, and my old assignment would call me Olaf. Just like it's like no, just like don't call me Olaf, like the the, the snowman like from the Frozen. Snowman. But it was like he was saying it just because he everybody would pronounce my name Olaflin, which everybody does. But that's okay. I don't I don't correct people anymore. I don't mind. Was that Father John Nepple? It was Father John Nepple. <laughs> you do know <laughs> all about you, me. <laughs> big, big fan of Catholic stuff. You should know podcast. Um, I I have to say it was between you and Father Nathan Goble for me as my favorite. Uh, priest from the from the past because father, father nepple is not going to listen to this so, so yes, we're safe um but, but yeah yeah you you might know father from uh from uh catholic stuff podcast you should know um catholic stuff you should know podcast or what god it what god is not exactly. podcast with um modern mother Natalia. of christ the bridegroom master yeah both of those wow, were so like, much fun, and it's very different ch chatting with priests, brother priests, and it is chatting with like a spiritual daughter who's also a nun. But bo both of them are are one of my favorite things to do. To that Jesus would take stuff like that and make it effective towards evangelization is incredible to me. You guys know that you have a podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it has been very rewarding, especially because we get to talk to uh, people like you. Um, and and today it, we want to talk to you about. Um, uh, Eastern Catholicism, Byzantine Catholicism in, in, in particular. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like how were you raised uh, Byzantine Catholic or were you Roman Catholic first? How did you fall into uh, being now a Ruthenian Catholic? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised uh, in a wonderful Roman Catholic family. My mom and my dad are some of the holiest people I know. They raised us to truly believe that Jesus Christ is relevant. He loves us. Um, I've never had a doubt in my mind um, that that he is the most important thing in my life and that he loves me and, and that will never change. Um, and that was my parents. My mom grew up. Um, neither of them have had my, my mom's family all fell away except her mother at some point. But she had an amazing priest, Father John Fitzgerald, that, that kind of, even she was a young teenager, kept her in the faith. My dad is kind of a cool, calm, collected, quiet guy. Um, he, he wears his faith very, very deeply. Um, but, uh, but it wasn't always very showy to us, at least, whereas my mother was our teacher in the faith. Um, and so we grew up Roman Catholic. And uh, this, this priest, Father John Fitzgerald, was such an influence on our life. We'd go to confession to him from when we were, you know, eight, nine years old. Um, and he would give us all the sacraments. He baptized all of us. He also just made the faith very, very relevant to us. And when he retired, uh, the parish we were going to in Albuquerque, New I was going to make a joke, two Mexican dads and one New Mexican father, because I grew up in, uh, <laughs> grew up in New Mexico. Um, but uh, we, he, we just, the parish we were going to, I won't name it, but um, my mother just was, was certainly more orthodox than the priest there. And 
she would have <laughs> been very educated and she would just correct his homilies almost every single Sunday. I, I, wow. I felt for her, you know, on the way home. And she knew we loved this guy. Like the, the priest, he loved us. We loved him. But but just the way he was preaching, it was, you know, pretty much a denial of angels, of Christ's divinity, sometimes bordering on the denial of the real presence in the Eucharist. And, oh. you know, the 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 word we loved serving, um, but my mom just had to correct him all the time, and I think she just got sick of it. So I'm I'm being very strong here, but but this is really what was the catalyst. Mm -hmm. So my mom went to this retired priest, and he said, "Well, there's there's you know beautiful, wonderful Roman Catholic churches here, here, and here, um, or there's the Byzantine Catholic Church, which is actually in your neighborhood." And uh, mm. my parents have been <laughs> once before we were born, but. We went, we went, we checked them all out and all of us kids, there were five of us. I'm the oldest. I was 17. My little sister, who was 12 years younger than me, was what, five, three in between us. And we all just said, yeah, this is it. My parents were even wow. like, yeah, that was kind of cool. But, you know, not every week. We're like, yes, every week. Like, this is what we want. And uh, so, yeah, I discovered it when I was a teenager. I went to Thomas Aquinas College for a year. So it was very Roman Catholic then. Uh, went back home, failed out, uh, went back home for a year, did community college for a year, did the Byzantine thing then, then went off to Steubenville, did mostly the Roman Catholic thing for three more years, graduated, went right to Byzantine seminary after that. So I've had a good mix of both. And I actually got more emotional when I did my first Roman mass than when I did my first Byzantine liturgy because it's really? what I grew up with. And I remember being a kid and, and you know, this is before the new translation of the Roman Mass. So the old one, and like saying the same words I heard the priest say, it was just, it was such a, it caught me off guard. It was so powerful. So um, I'm fully Byzantine. I, I converted, you know, changed rights officially when I was in college, probably junior year. But both, both uh, East and West, those expressions of Catholicism are very, very dear to me. That's that's amazing. Thank you for that story. Sure. It's so interesting that the kids were like, no, mom and dad, this is what we want. You know, to this day, I that that's how families start coming is because the kids want to go back. <clears throat> the Byzantine liturgy I found is just a very kid-friendly. There's a lot of repetition. Everything is sung, um, even though it's longer. You know, we, we go a good hour 15, mm -hmm. you know, on average, but but they love the singing. Generally, our, our churches should not have pews, and I'll, I'll stand behind that even though the other priests yell at me. But um, having no pews also, it just <laughs> it makes the kids, it makes the adults be more wander. participatory, right? Because they're not just sitting down. Like mm -hmm. when you're standing up, you just feel I need to be more active. You sit down for the homily, you sit down for mm -hmm. the, the uh, first reading, things like this, but the kids can wander a bit. They can kind of be themselves. Um, you know, it's like, it's like a dance for at a wedding. They kind of just, you know, dance around and the church building, the temple, we call it is supposed to be Eden. You know, it's supposed to be the garden of Eden. Kids kids should mm -hmm. feel when they're in there, that there's a certain looseness in their father's house. Um, and they just, yeah, they tend to like the singing and, and everything else. It's it, they, they touch the vestments as the priestesses processions. There's just a lot of, of childlike participation in the liturgy that could be there. And the kids notice that right off. That's awesome. Well, you know, I have St. Stephen Byzantine Catholic Cathedral nine minutes away from my home. So I might talk to tell, my wife about this. Tell Father Diodoro I said hi. He's he's one of my closest friends, the the pastor there, the Protestant cellist. Uh, really, really good guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you uh, you have some connections to Phoenix. We're, we're both in Phoenix, Arizona, because you're part of the Ruthenian Catholic Eparchy of the Holy Protection of Mary of Phoenix. I, I see like a pattern, like Eastern Catholicism <laughs> has very long names. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and um, so basically this, an eparchy would be like the uh, equivalent of a diocese. Exactly. And um, I think if I'm not mistaken from what I saw online, it, the, 
that are parishes in, or churches in New Mexico, Arizona, California, Washington State, Alaska. Yep. And I might be missing basically the western half of the United States. So in our in our current American Ruthenian Church, uh, there are four eparchies, so four dioceses. Um, we are our eparchy here in the West is the largest geographically, just because we include Alaska. <laughs> but um, but it's it's large geographically, but it's the smallest as as far as number of people and parishes go. Mm-hmm. So when when okay. immigrants came to the U.S. in like kind of 1880 through 1920, this massive immigration of Slavs from Ukraine and Slovakia. That's when our Ruthenian people, our, our forebearers, came here. They settled where the mills and the mines were. So they settled in Pittsburgh, Jersey City, Cleveland. Um, so here in the West, we were kind of left out. It was just those who traveled here for military or whatever retired here. So we have the smallest number of parishes um, and therefore the smallest number of priests. But yeah, we, we cover everything pretty much if you go New Mexico up to Montana and then West, including Alaska and Hawaii. That's our diocese, our parking. That's amazing. And um, for some reason, I, I remember one episode of uh, Catholic stuff that Father Keith Kenny was shouted out in one of the episodes, and I immediately was like, "Father Kenny, you got a shout out in the podcast." And he <laughs> mentioned that he celebrated the Ruthenian uh, Divine Liturgy with you. I'm like, "Oh my goodness, it's like worlds collide!" And then <laughs> Bishop Olmsted was the uh, the apostolic administrator for your eparchy. I'm like, oh my goodness, we have so many things in common. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I go to Phoenix probably two or three times a year because of uh, that's where the bishop is. So the various committees I'm on, or we have our retreat and our conference. And it's that in, in ironically Vegas are the two cheapest places for all of us to fly into. And also in Vegas, the cheapest place for <laughs> to get hotels. So we all, we like, we <laughs> gather every year for a kind of law conference in Vegas and just for, cause we're flying from Anchorage and from Honolulu and from Seattle and Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's, you know, it gotta be cheap airport and uh, cheap hotels and that's Vegas and Phoenix is just where the offices are. So we do that too. There you go. There you go. The next time you're in in Phoenix, hit us up. We'll take you to to mm-hmm. one of our favorite cigar bars. Well, my that favorite cigar be bar because I'm trying to get Gustavo to get into cigars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he said I had to grow the the longest beard first before I could go out and have a cigar. So working do, on it. <laughs> it does help. The one problem with a beard, if you're married is that that it smells like Sticks. cigar smoke after you're done. So you got to – my old cigar bar in Denver literally had like a home-to-the-wife station where there was Febreze and mouthwash <laughs> and all these other things. Like try to make yourself presentable to your wife and you go up so she lets you come back. I know. Uh, yeah, my wife, Deanna, that's why I have, I'm rocking the, the short beard now, but I used it used to cover like all mm-hmm. my whole T-shirt. You couldn't see my neck. Uh, but my, my, my daughter, she's, uh, almost four and she's like, why do you smell? I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was just smoking. It's very sensitive to aromas and different things, but, but yeah. Um, well, that's amazing. Um, so getting into, we talked a little bit about, uh, uh some words like Ruthenian Catholic and eparchy and, and all these other things. But, um, I think for our listeners that might not be, um, aware of uh, kind of like the history of like what happened because some people here like the east the west we have uh, uh, the church fathers of the west the church fathers of the east why do we divide them can you talk a little bit about the history like maybe what what happened in of a bridge history of what happened like in, in 1504 and forward up to this point that where where what 
what was the thing that happened that made it so that we have East and West? Sure. So uh, obviously in Matthew 28, Christ sends out the apostles to the four corners of the world. And they, they were meant to go from Jerusalem to the four corners. So I actually have a, I have a, a Jerusalem pilgrim tattoo on my arm. And that, that's what the, I got it in Jerusalem. And that's what the Jerusalem cross is. It's the one big cross in the middle. I don't know if you with can see four. it here, but with, with the four little crosses. And that's the starting in Jerusalem and to the four corners of the world. So um, okay, it's one of the Is that in the, in, the, in the oldest tattoo? Uh, Yep. Razook? Yeah. Yeah. I got it from Razook. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Nice. It was, uh, and it, it's, I mean, what it was, he's like the 24th generation, 23rd, 24th mm -hmm. generation there. So he's done this a million mm -hmm. times. Um, but, but so obviously he started with Christ in Jerusalem where he, where he died. Um, the apostles spread out. So they were obviously going to go to the big cities they were meant to evangelize. So they went north to modern day Antioch, which is in, in, uh, well, in ancient Antioch, which is in modern day Turkey. They went south to, uh, Alexandria, which is modern day Egypt. And then they, uh, then of course, Peter and Paul uh, were taken west to Rome, Jerusalem itself. And then when Rome moved in the fourth century to the head of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, those were the mm -hmm. five main hubs of Christianity in the early, mm -hmm. early church. What happened was, is that you notice that four of those hubs are pretty close to each other, namely Constantinople, <laughs> Antioch, Jerusalem, and, and, and Alexandria. Then there's Rome, which is far west. So uh, Rome had primacy ever since the first ecumenical council in the year 325. So Rome was given primacy over the other. So um, all that all that meant really, and and people would argue with me over the wording of that. Um, it's pretty much the the greatest among equals, the eldest among brothers. Um, and I myself use I use the fact I use the terminology that we Eastern Catholics are in union with Rome rather than saying under Rome or anything like that. There's, there's some nuance mm. there, um, but, but there's still okay. a full communion. Um, but the, uh, what happened was, is, is there's no, the Bible doesn't say how to say the mass. The Bible doesn't say how to say the divine liturgy, celebrate the Eucharist. So um, what the Bible does say is how Jesus celebrated Passover and, and the Shabbat meals that the mm -hmm. Jews were already doing. So uh, when these apostles went out to other countries other locations they they adopted the cultural nuances of that area and incorporated it into their eucharistic meals so as time went on mm -hmm. they were doing shabbat meals they were doing you know sabbath meals and passover meals but they also incorporated some cultural norms because these early eucharistic suppers were just meals these were celebrations that people would have in their homes um, and they were the normal meals they would have, but but with because of Christ and because of the priesthood, these were Eucharistic meals. They were now having Christ's body and mm. blood um, instead of just bread and wine, along with other things in these meals. So um, after years and years and years of these churches halfway sticking to themselves, halfway kind of getting each other's way and and a little, little bit of, of tension because of pride and things like that. Um, in the year 1054, um, after a few years of tension between East and West, um, it came to a head, and the uh, a representative from the Pope uh, excommunicated the Patriarch in Constantinople, and the, the Patriarch in Constantinople excommunicated the Pope. And so you have this, <laughs> what we call the Great Schism. And the, the, the Great Schism was really wasn't lived out fully for a few hundred years later until the sack of Constantinople. Anyway, there's all these history, politics, pride okay. that went along with it. So, but we'll pretty much name 1054 as the date that, that you have Catholics in the West and Orthodox in the East. Um, it's okay. a much messier than that. But mm -hmm. what happened was then about 500 years later, 600 years later, uh, through many influences, politics, Protestantism, faith, spirit, 
um, there were a bunch of Orthodox in the East who wanted to come back in union with Rome. They wanted to be Catholic mm. again or be in union with the Catholics. And um, that's what I am. I'm one of those, one of those formal, formerly Christian when we were all Christian together. And then, and then when Orthodox, when the split happened and then came back into union with Rome, we did in, in 1646 through Ruthenian church. Ruthenian is just a Latinization of, of the word Rusin, which is where we also get Russian from. So it's the, uh, we are the, okay. the Slav church of modern day Ukraine, Slovakia. Um, and and the the culture is just over time and over hundreds of years change, and that's why our liturgy looks different than the mass. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I um, I had a an interesting exchange with a gentleman on the line for confession um, at at a Catholic church close to me. Um, I was in line for confession, and he's like, "Are you Catholic?" And I'm like. Yes, are you? And he's like, no, I'm 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 Orthodox. I'm Romanian. I'm like, oh, welcome. Uh, and he's like, is this where you go to confession? I'm like, yeah, just get here behind me. And he's <laughs> like, I want to receive Holy Communion tomorrow. And I'm like, me too. I want to receive Communion tomorrow. And he's like, you don't call it holy? And I'm like, yes, Holy Communion. <laughs> so it was kind of like he was testing how, like I was wow. like, is there, is there a priest in there? And I'm like, yeah, there's a priest in there. He's, he's from the Philippines. I don't know. They want to see his credentials. He's like, oh, it's very interesting. So <laughs> just like this, is this what ecumenism looks like? Um, mm -hmm. But they can, so Orthodox can receive sacraments in the Catholic Church, but we cannot receive sacraments uh, in this. Is that... As a generalization, yes. So um, the okay. when we say Orthodox, there are so many different Orthodox churches. So there's Russian and Greek, and then within that there's there's Romanian, like this guy. There's then there's all the Oriental Orthodox churches, um, like many Assyrians and the Coptics and the Ethiopians. So all of those, the the Orthodox mm -hmm. churches is much less. Um, they don't have a unified head that that whose decisions trickle down to all of them. So they they really their bishop is the head of the church in 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 um, okay. in all for all practical purposes. So um, the, what we say the we as Catholics we will let Orthodox receive Eucharist because they have apostolic succession. They receive the Eucharist all the time, and and they they believe like we do that it is truly the body and blood of Christ. Um, but mm -hmm. for ecumenical reasons, namely, we want to be sensitive to the Orthodox. We don't encourage them to do that. We don't want them to be disobedient to their bishops because most Orthodox mm -hmm. bishops do not want them receiving the Eucharist in our church because with, I mean, in the East, we, we have the same mindset really as the Orthodox still, thank God. But it's like we call it communion. We call it Eucharist mm -hmm. too, of course, this Thanksgiving. But communion, it really is a sign of union. And so the, the Orthodox would say, and I get it, I understand it. Well, if we're not in union with them, why are we sharing a common Eucharist? Um, mm -hmm. Which right. is, it's, it's a good point. And we don't want to forget that we're not in union and we want to work towards that union. Um, but we Catholics generally will let Orthodox receive only because we know that they have all seven sacraments um, like we do, even though they're not in union with, union with the Pope. Like we are, um, but uh, but so we'll let them receive, and I've done that. If if they really want to, I will let them as long as they know that that you know. Are, are you getting permission from a spiritual father at least, um, your bishop, etc.? But yeah, and generally we let them receive. To overgeneralize, we let them receive, but they they have a different definition of communion than we do, um, and they would generally not let us receive. But that that hmm. happens too sometimes. That's very interesting, because um, that are I'm, I mean I'm. 
Gustavo and I would, I think that I geek out about monasticism more than, than, than Gustavo does probably. <laughs> but um, so when I, when I found out about like the, the great schema, like the, the Eastern uh, monks that have, they received that, I think it, correct me if I'm wrong. They received a piece of investment that has like very cool design of like mm -hmm. the cross and the, with the, with the skull at the bottom and, arrows pointing upwards and downwards for some reason i don't know the whole sy symbology about it but it is a an outward sign of that monk has reached a specific level of um spirituality or, or holiness is, is that what it is it is it's a very interesting thing so there's there's within monasticism um, you know, Basil the Great um, back in the fourth or fifth century was explicit. I, I love the quote from him. He says, if you don't live together, if you don't live with somebody else, whose feet will you wash? If you don't mm -hmm. live in community. So in other words, if you live alone, you 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 can't express even the most basic acts of, of Christianity, which is to wash each other's feet. Christ demands that of us. Mm -hmm. So um, in the Eastern Church, we we hold very strictly to the fact that we must live in community. I'm I'm an odd man out. In the Byzantine Church, you you normally do not have a celibate man as a pastor. In the US, we do, and there's a long history of that. But generally, pastors are married, married priests, which we do have, not to scandalize anybody. We've had this for, for since the time of Christ. Um, mm -hmm. But but and then monks, if you're celibate, you live in a monastery. And then bishops are the, are a very unique thing because bishops were were traditionally taken out of the monasteries. And so bishops have been celibate since you know the first couple hundred years of the church. Um, mm -hmm. But but they would come from the monasteries. And so you had celibate bishops, but most pastors are married. So th this this living in community was very very important. So if you lived in a monastery and if you attained a certain level of of, of holiness and the definition of this was pretty much you didn't need other people anymore because you were so in communion with God. So mm. this this grand schema, this great schema is a vestment you'd wear on top of your normal monastic vestments. It had an image of the cross on it because this person has carried the cross. It has all these symbols and, and words, to, you know, to, exp expressing and explaining what the crucifixion was. But one of my favorite things about it is, is it has two two shoulder kind of pieces of cloth that hang down over the shoulders that actually bind your arms to your body. And the idea was that once you attain that level of holiness, you, you do not labor anymore. So <laughs> all, all the younger monks, they make the beds, they clean the kitchen. But once you're in conversation with God like that, now, now labor is just kind of worthless. You, 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 you're able to be in constant conversation with our Lord. Um, so, but if you look at them now, if you like Google great schema or grand schema, you'll see they kind of hang down, but they don't actually bind their arms. So I kind of call that weak sauce. Okay. But anyway, that, that, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's what it used to be was like the binding of the arms so that you could just talk to God all the time and not have to do anything else. And, oh, and that's back. My, my point was that at that point you could go become a hermit. So like you could leave the monastery and become okay. a hermit somewhere out. So in other words, you have community with God. You don't need community with the monks anymore. So even the married priests would get this? No, mar married priests, no. So monks were always all celibate. Um, married okay, priests, there are, there are levels of married priesthood too. You can call someone an archpriest um, and things like that. But um, but generally, the married men were, were pastors. So if, if traditionally in a city, you'd have a parish or two where the people got their public sacraments. So you'd go to the mm -hmm. parish for mm -hmm. baptism and marriage and Eucharist. 
But then you had the monastery nearby where you'd go for spiritual direction or for anointing of the sick or for confession. So um, you kind of anointing of the sick was oftentimes public as well. But um, but you you had this is why the married man generally would not get called out at three in the morning because you, mm -hmm. you'd call the monks. You'd go to the monks for these things like this. So there was this working between the celibates and the married men, the married men in the parishes, and then the celibates out in the monasteries, but both of them were nearby. Nowadays, we don't have nearly enough monks or enough priests, but um, to mm -hmm. kind of have that lived reality, but that is the goal. I wonder if any priest would try to uh, put one over their wives. It's like, sweetie, my hands are literally tied. I can't take out the garbage. <laughs> this is what Sorry, you're getting at, Gustavo. Yeah, yeah that's... <laughs> <laughs> and you can't buy one of those in a costume store either. Sorry, guys. Yeah, well, have to earn it with lots and lots of prayer and union Amen. with God. Um, that is fantastic. Um, you said something that uh, when you said about like the the uh, the communion with God and, and continuous communion with God. That, um, uh, uh, when I was in, I, I happened to be in Saint Petersburg in two thousand and four and um went to all these orthodox churches so it's, it was lost on me because i was not even a practicing catholic back then i was falling away from the mm. faith but i bought what i thought was an incomplete rosary um because i had 33 uh <laughs> beads and i'm like okay well i'll just guess i'll just get a souvenir for my mom and my grandma <laughs> i'm like i don't know this is this is for like I don't know, the three, you can pray like the sorrowful mysteries in one set and then the, the other two and the <laughs> other. But then I found out it was a chotki mm -hmm. that I, what I had bought and, and, and the the Jesus prayer, uh, which right now it's escaping me now that I said. Jesus, Jesus son Christ. of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, which is now ever since I learned that it's kind of like one of my go-to uh, mm. prayers, especially when I'm in adoration and I don't know what to tell God. So I just start saying that over and over again. Um, so that's very Eastern in, in and of itself. Like, do you know who came up with that? Who confectioned the prayer? So there's it, the source, the original source is the Bible. I mean, it comes from the the publican's prayer when he walks into the church, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then you kind of tie that into the blind man mm -hmm. who cries out, um, son of David, but it's, you know, Lord son Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So um, it, it has scriptural roots, but then you have various stages. There's a great book called The Way of a Pilgrim that kind of explains um, this in, in a story about this Russian pilgrim who who takes very seriously the the command in Thessalonians to pray constantly. And he, mm -hmm. he, he, he says, well, I, that means I must pray while I sleep. That means I must pray while I eat, while I'm talking to people. Like, how do I do all these things? And he kind of traveled all around Russia looking for an answer to this. And he finally received it. That was the Jesus prayer. In other words, the Jesus prayer is, is pretty much basically two words, Jesus mercy, right? So you can hear those mm -hmm. two words, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he was advised to, to pray this along with his breathing. So you breathe in our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, breathe out sin, have mercy on me, a sinner. Breathe in our Lord, mm -hmm. breathe out sin. So what your your prayer becomes your, your I'm sorry, your breathing becomes your prayer. Because we breathe while we sleep, we breathe while we eat, we breathe while we're taught. So what, what are we doing all the, and it's, it's also tied into our heartbeat. So it's called the prayer of the heart. So your heart is always beating, you're always breathing. If you make those two things prayer, then you are you are literally praying constantly. 
Um, this was kind of amplified in the probably 13th through 17th centuries to what's called hesychasm. Hesychasm, it means like stillness. And it was, it was the kind of the, a, a new generation of, of orthodox uh, spiritual writers and monks and nuns who, who pretty much said praying the Jesus prayer. And the reason we use Chalky, you, you mentioned the beads, 33 years for Jesus's life, but you can have as many beads as you want. They don't have to be the same amount because all you're doing is going around and over and over and over again. So the idea is that um, God gave us more than just our minds. So we use our bodies in prayer. So mm-hmm. you use your fingers to move the beads. You use your heart when it beats. You use your lungs. You do bows and prostrations, signs of the cross. All these things you do while praying the choke so that our entire being, body, soul, mind, everything is is being used in prayer. Um, and so you just pray it over and over again, and it, and it brings stillness. You know, St. Seraphim Sarov. Uh, a Russian saint uh, lived a couple hundred years ago. He said, if you, if you attain divine stillness, you will save a thousand souls. Mm-hmm. And I think you dads know this, right? If if you have a peaceful demeanor in your home, it your, your wife acts differently, your kids act differently, like uh, true confidence, humility, and stillness truly affects all and saves the souls of all those around us because Christ is working in us, therefore he's working in them. So that's what this prayer does basically by just saying Jesus and mercy. We, we are, we're calling upon our Lord. We're asking him to save us, forgive us, give us mercy, love us. And, and this, this stillness that we attain through our breathing and our, it sounds so hokey, but right. Our breathing slows down. Our heart finds a good pace. Mm-hmm. All these things happen. And we, we find this physical, mental, spiritual stillness through this prayer that then affects everybody around us. Father, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> we- <laughs> We just did an episode on meekness. Ah. We know how like wrath, when it gets out of check, mm-hmm. it just becomes so problematic. Um, but yeah, I, I have a funny story. When uh, I work in, in IT and when we were in the office, I've been working from home for the last three years, but I saw one of my coworkers, he would always be walking around with a chutki until one day uh, I just saw him by the water cooler and i'm like hey are you orthodox i see that you are walking around with, with the chotki and he was taken aback mm-hmm. because i knew that it was a prayer rope so we became friends mm-hmm. and um he invited us to their home to have dinner and <laughs> There was kind of an awkward moment because they had a beautiful wall full of icons mm-hmm. and we love icons in, in my family as well. Um, but they had one that it was like the impediments for salvation. And there were all of these people. And then there was, a, it was like, well, maybe you, you might be offended by this one, but there's the Pope represented in, in that icon. And I was like, well, you know, you guys have that belief with hopefully we can become you know the church can breathe with the the, the both lungs mm-hmm. but i um i love icon- it's all this to say that i wanted to make a segue into iconography mm-hmm. uh, and and why would you say it is that in the eastern churches um icons are preferred to say statues like in in the roman uh, church Sure. The, the understanding of the, the reasons or the meaning for having them is, is different. There's also similarities. They're both inspirational that, that can call us to prayer, um, through, through the, the art of them, the beauty of them. 
Um, but in the uh, in the East, we have everything is two dimensional. That's why you mentioned the grand schema, even like the images of the grand schema. Mm-hmm. Everything is two dimensional because um, it's supposed to be a window, um, an access mm-hmm. point, like a window. We call the icons windows into heaven. So. Um, there are special blessings that we do on icons, and they're, they're made a very special way. They're made with prayer and fasting. They're made with only natural pigments, natural elements. You use all the natural elements, um, even you know the the hot breath. Uh, um, you know when you you breathe on them, you put gold on them. You you use egg egg tempura. So if icons are made properly and they're made without any brush strokes, you're not supposed to traditionally. You're not supposed to see the hand of the artist because it's supposed to be the divine that you're seeing, not not the method in which they were made. They're made with with with, with um, even like gesso and all these other elements. There's very specific ways of praying and fasting mm. and using very specific elements. Wood, of course. Um, and so these icons, when they're properly made, or if they're not properly made, they're blessed. Um, they become windows into heaven and through anamnesis, namely divine remembrance. When Christ says, do this in remembrance of me, um, mm-hmm. he's saying like, whenever you celebrate this Eucharist, I will make myself, my death, my resurrection present to you. Through it'll, I will travel through space and through time to be present to you. So we believe that's what icons are. Icons are 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 that mystery or that saint becoming present to us in a very very mystical way, but a very real way. Um, where mm. statues are are these beautiful inspirations towards prayer that that call this person to mind and that we can kneel in front of. And there's a certain it's a certain medium for prayer, but icons are just I guess a more more intense. Um, way of experiencing that. And you can see this in that that the Roman church, um, obviously the second most important, the second most effective, and maybe the second most beautiful, the strongest way of praying is, of course, adoration and exposition of the Eucharist, right? So you put our mm-hmm. Lord, body, blood, soul, divinity in a monstrance, and you gaze upon him. We, we've, we've never... We've never had exposition for various reasons in our church. Um, okay. We we always reserve the Eucharist in the parishes, but it's mostly for the sick. Um, but I, I think the the West for a while was lacking this uh, something to actually be a, a a means to Christ, which of course the Eucharist is Christ right there. Um, the the one thing I, a friend of mine told us me this a while ago, but um, we in the East just never developed the the idea of exposition and adoration. Um, it's something I still love because I grew up Roman Catholic and I went to TAC in Steubenville. So it's something very, very close to my heart to this day. But um, somebody said one time, you know, it's like in the East, we are so sensory. So we have smells and bells and everything has its place. Incense symbolizes as our prayer rising to heaven. Icons are so specific. Um, you have bells that, that that are on the sensor, all these things. And of course, we put hot water into the Eucharist so that when you taste the Eucharist, it tastes warm, like living blood rather than mm. cold blood. So when you taste the precious blood, it's warm because this is the this is the blood of the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. So we have so many ways of making sure that that the sensory experiences so that my friend said it very beautifully in the in the Eastern mindset, when we, we, we have so many things that are so sensory, if you hold up the Eucharist, and it looks like bread, and you say, this is Christ, I would go, yes, I believe it. And then you put him away. <laughs> it's like, that's torture. <laughs> like, no, let me receive him. Like, he's in the form mm-hmm. of bread for a reason. I want to receive him. And of course, that doesn't hold much water for Roman Catholic. Just say, well, I receive him at Mass. We have Mass every day. We also don't have daily Eucharist as our tradition in our church, just Sundays mm-hmm. and feast days, which is the ancient way in the West as well. So the churches would have looked a lot more similar six, 700 years ago than they do now. There's a lot, a lot of advancements since Trent in the West, a lot of advancements, cer- certain advancements since like the, probably the sixth to ninth centuries in the East. 
That's wow. so fascinating. Yeah. And yet we're all still Catholic, which is pretty incredible that people can mm-hmm. be born and raised Catholic their whole life and not even know that we exist and have married priests. So we give Eucharist to our <laughs> infants. As soon as the kids baptize, we're putting the precious blood in their mouth their whole time growing up, you know, things like that that are just so foreign to most Roman Catholics and yet are fully legitimately Byzantine Catholic. That's interesting. I, I know of uh, someone that we interviewed on the podcast. Uh, he took his daughter to a Melkite church Mm-hmm. And he started received uh, <laughs> Jesus. And we're like, okay, we're taking it back a little bit because we did yeah. not know about that. Uh, that was uh, possible. You're really but not so- supposed to if you're Roman Catholic, but I've given First Holy Communion to by 10 two-year-olds in my life because <laughs> they could come up and open their mouth and i'm just so used to it. i just give it to their parents like <gasps> and i'm like oh i did you i didn't know like we give you uh, to kids here the kids just uh, the kids on cloud nine they're like yes <laughs> i tricked the system loophole <laughs> exactly loophole that's amazing um so you're receiving both speeches we do the, uh, you in, have to receive both speech. yeah so we are in the, the Melkites do it differently. The Melkites usually in tinct for everybody. We use leavened bread as well. So you take leavened bread and it's the risen Christ, risen bread. So you, 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 in the Melkite church, in the, any Greek church, generally, especially the Melkites, I take that back. Only the Melkites and other church churches, the Greeks don't, but um, the, you take a, a little piece of leavened bread and, you, and the priest uh, or the deacon dips it in the chalice and puts it in the person's mouth. Uh, we in the Slav churches and our Ruthenian church, we put um, the, the, the you know particles of leavened bread in the chalice and we use a golden spoon to give it mm-hmm. to people so you walk up you open your mouth wide tilt your head back keep your tongue in the priest will actually put the body and blood of our lord from the spoon and it's warm um because of the template of the hot water and into your mouth like that and that's it you receive like a baby bird as we say just open your mouth nice. your head back and you'll you'll <laughs> receive like a mama bird given to the baby bird <laughs> like the pelican exactly and then for kids uh, you just kind of dip the spoon in the precious blood and then just put it in the kid's mouth that way they don't use they can't receive the bread until they're older of course but when they can then you give it to them that, that sounds is awesome mm-hmm. um so you talked about uh, we talked about like this the byzantine catholic church but the right is called the routine ruthenian right is that correct the other way around. So, so the the right oh. is the. So this is we're, we mean to be confusing in this. Um. So, so the, <laughs> the there are there are six different Catholic rites, and there's twenty four different Catholic churches. So, um, the okay. way it works in the East is you have a rite. A rite just means a ritual. So there's a way of basically to overgeneralize. There's a way of saying the mass. So the Melkites and okay. the Greeks and the Russians and the Ruthenians were all Byzantine rite, but those are all the different names of the churches. Okay. Um, in the West, is kind of the opposite. In the West, you have one church with multiple rites underneath the, the one church. In the East, we have multiple rites. We have five rites with, with different churches <laughs> under each rite. So this is why, I mean, we mean to confuse you. But to confuse you further, um, our Ruthenian <laughs> church, when we came to the U.S., you know, probably 80 years ago, our bishops decided Ruthenians town sounds too ethnic. We want to be just American. We just want to be, we don't want to have to, you know, people to be a certain ethnicity mm-hmm. called churches. So they, they started using the name of the right, namely Byzantine for the name of the church. Oh, so <laughs> most of the time you'll hear Byzantine Catholic church. What they mean is Ruthenian church, Byzantine right. But we use this, their name of the right for our church as well so that we don't sound so ethnic. Yeah, people should really uh, rewind this and hear hear it over again. <laughs> I know there's a lot I'm there. Make a remix. I, I so if it, it is, is this, this, if it's this, there's a this. there's a quiz at the end. Just rewind the thirty seconds. Um, 
If you okay, go to so my web, my parish website, which is byzantinela.com, we try to explain that pretty well on there. So byzantinela.com. I'm in Los Angeles. Nice. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're in Sherman Oaks, right? Yep. Little okay. Sherman Oaks, LA. Yeah. On the way, my wife is from Northern California, but we always stop at like Rancho Cucamonga or oh, like yeah. Valencia at the longest, but you're a little bit further in west than we take the i5 north um but anyways sorry C coming back to the uh the rights because i see um uh, according to wikipedia this could be wrong but <laughs> there's an alexandrian right mm -hmm. using by the coptics eritrean and ethiopian churches yep armenian right is by the armenian catholic church byzantine right which is albanian belarusian uh, Everyone has like Greek as last name, Bulgarian Greek. Yeah. Greek Catholic Church of Croatia and Serbia. <laughs> I thought that that was funny. It was like Greek Catholic Church of Croatia and Serbia. Well, um, uh, so in so the U.S., we generally call those right? Byzantine, but in, in Europe, they would say they're, we're either, either Roman Catholic or Greek Catholic. So, like, if you're in Europe, we would be mm. called Greek Catholic. Mm. So, that's why most of those churches have Greek in their name. Yeah. Got it. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's just, it's like a national that thing. Very. It's like a national thing. Yeah. yeah, because correct me if I'm wrong, but from the impression that I get is that this was more or, or the Eastern churches that are now united to Rome uh, were more like geographically and, and like culturally bound than because, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is more like it exploded with, you know, Spain going to Latin America and, uh, well, mainly that, I would say, the colonization, the, basically, Gustavo and I grew up with, like, you know, just knowing that there was uh, Roman Catholicism until we came to the U.S. We found out that mm -hmm. there are other flavors of uh, Catholicism <laughs> as well, um, which, you know, then the, the mixture of, like, you know, Mexican culture, or like Filipino culture, with like Roman Catholicism, it's all like a blending of. It's a melting things. pot, yeah. Um, but it seems like the 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 Eastern Catholic churches remain kind of unchanged. Would you say that the, like the the rites have been pretty much the same since they their conception, or has there been changes to them? The rights certainly have. So those main rights that you mentioned earlier, the churches, because like last night I, I prayed a divine liturgy in the Melkite church. And so the Melkites are, are Byzantine right, but they, they come from Lebanon and Syria, whereas my Ruthenian church, we're Byzantine right, but we come from Ukraine and Slovakia. So mm. our, we're going to have a different, even though we both say the divine liturgy in English, we're going to have a different translation. So like I'm at their church, mm. I'm using their translation. So it's slightly different, but it's the same divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. But now like, I'm, this is the mm -hmm. co-cathedral in North Hollywood. So they, they, they have a lot of Lebanese immigrants. So they, they do half the liturgy or more in Arabic and, and, and then half mm -hmm. of it in English. So at a church like that, yes, you're going to get, you're going to get a lot more kind of a, of a cultural unity of, 
of Lebanese people there, you know, certainly mm. Arabic speakers there. Whereas in our Ruthenian church, we've made sure that we do everything in English for quite a while now. So I have mm. more Mexicans and Filipinos in my parish than I have Slavs, you know, because we, <laughs> we, we've become very American. And and I just, so you mentioned Valencia. We just bought a Pente little Pentecostal church in Santa Paula, which is out near Valencia. Um, and and we, we, we're now having divine liturgy there. Well, I have walked around the neighborhood. We kind of bought this church on a whim, we had the money, thank God, just from, from very generous donors. We bought this little tiny church. And so I've been walking around the neighborhood that nobody speaks English. Like it is a completely Spanish speaking neighborhood. <laughs> and I am like level one Spanish speaker. So, but I, we're going to start incorporating Spanish into our liturgy because the bishops let us do this. So we're actually going to have some Spanish litanies and things like that into our divine liturgy because we're in a Spanish speaking neighborhood. And um, a lot of the city of Santa Paula is all Spanish speakers. So like, we're going to be like the apostles, you adapt to the culture you're in. Yeah. You keep the divine liturgy on Christendom, but why not use Spanish um, if if the people in a neighborhood – I mean, why would we have a totally English-speaking liturgy in a completely Spanish-speaking neighborhood? You know, it, it'd be absurd. Makes so sense. so we, we in the Byzantine church are now – we have our right. We have our Byzantine right, but we don't look Slav except maybe, you know uh, – our iconography comes from the Slav tradition, our liturgy, certainly, but like our foods are all going to be Spanish. They're all going to be Mexican foods, you know, after a while. So, <laughs> and, and I don't mind that it's nice to kind of keep, I don't want to lose the pierogies and the halupki and the halushki and, and all the Slavic festivals. Delicious. Yeah, they are. I don't want to lose those, but, but we don't cling to those either because then you'll, you'll end up just being a, a, a church, a hospice church, you know, where it's a bunch mm -hmm. of old people whose kids don't come anymore because the kids don't care about the, the, those things as much. So we're starting to get back some of the yeah. kids just because we're more American, but yeah. Well, you know, everybody loves tacos. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, I, we're going to have to check it out now. Golly. Well, well, the, the pastor in St. Stephen's is Mexican. I mean, he's Father Didoro Mendoza, so he's he's fluent Spanish speaker. Um, so yeah, go to St. Stephen's in Phoenix there and just start talking Spanish. He'll talk back to you like a native. And he, and the a father, there's another priest there. I'm forgetting his name right now. Um, he he's he's Spanish, but he spent he's been trying to get in the country forever. So he spent a lot of time in Mexico too. But yeah, the, the two of the three priests there are are Spanish or Mexican. So it's, yeah, we're not, we're not a ethnic church anymore. As far as it, like our ancient ethnic heritage. We are Catholic. We're universal, Amen. baby. Mm -hmm. um, two things that I want to pick your brain on because um, I hear them more related to Eastern Catholicism than, than Western Catholicism. The concept of metanoia mm -hmm. and um, divinization um, cause I think that's very easy to correct me if I'm wrong, that in the Eastern church is more of a, uh, achieving like this, uh, I don't know if it's like vertical is like the best way to describe it. Like the, the more that one gets, uh, to resemble Christ that our lives should be aimed towards that. Is, is that what it is? Something yeah. similar? You probably so, can articulate it better than I do. <laughs> well, we, we have these stresses, but uh, the, the concept of metanoia and divinization are both in both Eastern and Western churches. So you've probably heard some of the Western fathers talk about the, the three steps of the spiritual life. You have the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. Um, mm -hmm. when, when, we, when we translate those in, into Greek, um, it's just um, you have catharsis, for the purgative way, you have photesis for the luminative way, and then you have theosis 
um, excuse me, for illuminative, and okay. then theos is for unity of way. Theosis and divinization are the same thing. It just means it means becoming God. It means becoming so united with God in the church in the body of Christ that we become we participate in His divinity, which is what salvation is. And and mm -hmm. part of that process is metanoia. Metanoia just means conversion. So think of like metamorphosis, change. Um, so, so metanoia is, is the process of conversion, um, that, that is a daily thing as well as a lifelong thing. And we, 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 our, our minds are, our hearts are changed. We change direction from the ways of the world. St. Paul's very eloquent about this, um, to the ways of Christ uh, and being open to Christ's grace working in us. And that begins, that's why we Byzantines are so good at fasting because it begins with catharsis with, with, with the with um, purging, you know, purging ourselves of the things that are keeping us from Christ. When we do that, we become empty in a sense. And then Christ fills us up with himself. And then when that happens, we become divine with his divinity. You know, um, we become God in God, um, just like just like Adam and Eve wanted to do. That's why the devil said, you'll become like gods, right? It was built into them to become divine um, in, yeah. in God's divinity. So the, this this idea he, that's what heaven is heaven is union with god that's the definition and that that's theosis or divinization heaven is union with god it'll fulfill all of our desires it's everything we want it's everything we are created for and the part of that process is metanoia or conversion that's why when we do a bow we call it a metany a, a little conversion mm. so every time you bow it's an act of humility you bow and then you, you, so you bow in humility, you stand up and make the sign of the cross because it's by the cross that we have the dignity of standing up. That's why we don't sit in divine liturgy either because there's such a dignity to standing, the dignity mm -hmm. of, of rising up, being risen by the risen Christ and, and, and dignity engaging with God in that way through his own uh, forgiveness and our repentance. What about, uh, you mentioned photosis, was this? Photesis. Photesis is illumination. So it, it just means the... Um, we, when somebody baptized, we call them the newly newly illuminated. So it's that we become um, we become uh, brightened, we become affected, we become saturated with the light of Christ. So Christ, who is our light, right. um, once we once we get rid of all the darkness that is our own sin, we let that light in mm -hmm. to all the the corners of our heart, the corner of our soul. We let Christ in there. He he purges us of all of our sin and then we we participate in christ's own light especially like think of the transfiguration right think of moses mm -hmm. the the uncreated light of god that shines in us um so in the in the west you generally have like saints like um padre pio like um francis of assisi who who had um stigmatas because that's a kind of a sign of mm -hmm. participation in the cross of christ in the east we have people that 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 glow like moses did like christ did so they'll say like a monk um, they'll just see his cell lit lit up with light. This is before electricity existed. And they would see his face and his hand shining. And this is kind of similar to a, a, a stigmata in the fact that they participate in Christ's light. His, his un, the uncreated light of God, like seen in the transfiguration, shines in them. Um, so that's the photesis is just um, being enlightened by the light of Christ that, that allows us to participate in his divinity. When we get there, we have unitive or theosis. Beautiful. That's awesome. Catharsis, phothesis, theosis. theosis yeah. mm -hmm. Nice. Today I learned. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's that's fantastic. This has been an amazing conversation, Father. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I think closing it out, or rounding it out. What would you say to uh, people that are listening that are Roman Catholics to invite them? to explore Eastern 
Catholicism so they can grow closer to God. I mean, we've we've given plenty of examples of things that they mm -hmm. could do, but what would you say would be something that people could benefit from? I think the the main thing is going to be to try to find a parish. Um, so if you're in Phoenix, you have St. Stephen's in Phoenix. Um, you have a St. Thomas and Gilbert. Those are our two Ruthenian parishes in the Phoenix area. Um, both of those, Father Diodoro at St. Stephen's, Father James at St. Stephen's. Um, you have Father Adam Lowe, who's a British priest down in uh, in St. Thomas in, in Gilbert. Um, then there, I know there's a Melkite parish, and there's a Ukrainian parish. There's plenty of, of of Byzantine parishes around. If you're somewhere where there's no Byzantine parish, um, you could even, I mean, again, you can go to an Orthodox church and just know that that's not us, you know, but pretty much you're going to go to an Orthodox church, Greek or Russian, and and they're going to pray for their their bishop. And in that place, we would pray for the Pope, you know, mm. and our bishop. Okay. So that's really the only difference. There's there's other differences in, in certain um, aspects of, of marriage law. And then, of course, um, the understanding of the role of the Holy Father. But those are pretty much the two things. Um, that especially the role of the Holy Father is the only thing that's keeping us from full union with the Orthodox. So you go to an Orthodox church, you're going to get everything that we that, that we are going to get if you go Byzantine. So it'll be an experience of that. Just pray for union when you're there. There's the tragedy of, of not being in union is, is, is really, really tragic. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I warn people against doing everything online. You know, I have a podcast <laughs> called What God Is Not. You mentioned that at the beginning. You know, I, I think we're pretty much we're, we're pretty safe, but I, I could be wrong. I'll let I'll let I'll be let a bishop correct me if we're not. Um, Father Thomas Loya, who's a priest in, in uh, Chicago, has a podcast called Light of the East. Um, there, there's various ways of encountering it, but just be careful. There's, you know, people are, are idiots online sometimes, as we know, and you got to be kind of careful what you see, <laughs> what you read. Um, but yeah, find a parish if you can, um, go to, you know, find a good podcast. There's a lot of good, a lot of good videos. Actually, if you're on YouTube, look up a, a, a channel called Becoming Byzantine. Um, there's mm. a couple of my buddies have, have, a, they've gone through pretty much step by step of what it means to, to immerse yourself in the Byzantine church. It's called Becoming Byzantine. They do great work for people that want to learn the basics of what it means to be Byzantine Catholic. And I trust them completely. Awesome. So are you going to be responsible for Matt Frantz's conversion to Byzantine Catholicism? <laughs> he is. He is. He became he Byzantine. Is? Yeah. Oh, yes. really? Sorry, he did. He... Oh, breaking news. <laughs> did not know. You know what's really funny, Father? I have to yeah. admit to you that I was listening to your uh, the episode, the, your most recent episode of What God Is Not that you did with your brother. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, you were hinting that Matt Frantz was going to uh, do an episode that was like, very controversial yeah. and i just happened to listen to that <laughs> episode and i was like i know what he's talking about matt warned us and 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 i, I won't go into it here there's not that time or place but i remember matt matt asked me a question when we were at seek together over a cigar and whiskey which is when you had these conversations and he said he said what do you think about this and i i said well i said i think this but you corrected me when i was on your podcast he's like i am so <laughs> sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> so there's nuance there's nuance to all these things but yeah it was uh but yeah he's he's now he's now canonically business Catholic. Well, there you wow. go. You heard it here first. Well, <laughs> yeah, breaking news. <laughs> I know he has said it publicly. That's why I can do it too. But yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, like we were, like, we're going to have to edit this part. Of <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. He said it um, now in his card, it says Byzantine Catholic instead of Roman Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in his club card. There, exactly. Um, Father, would you uh, close us in close the episode in 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 prayer, please? Of course. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. 
Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for these gentlemen. Thank you for their their um, role as husbands, as as parents, as as workers, laborers. Thank you for their role as evangelizers. Um, please let anything that we've said in this podcast uh, sit peacefully and comfortably in the hearts of those who listen. Please let your spirit, O oh Lord, continue to inspire those um, who listen. Have them uh, desire conversion, metanoia, holiness, theosis, every day of their life. Inspire them to prayer, true prayer that that leads them closer to you and lets them participate in your own divine nature. Help them to love their Roman Catholic Church and their Byzantine Catholic Church, their Eastern Catholic churches, uh, with all their heart. Let the them grow closer to you, Lord. Please protect and keep the devil away from any them and their families um, and his influence in any part of their life. Lord, send them into the world to be truly earthen vessels, carrying your light to those who you send all of us to. And may our Lord bless all of you who listen, all of you who are here in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Father Michael. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for everybody listening. And... Um... We'll see you next week. Like, subscribe, all those things. And bless the sons, Casey. Pray for us. Pray for us. Until the next time.